0: Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Before we go any further, um, thank you so much for all of the positive feedback that I'm receiving regarding these podcasts. Um, The number of downloads per day is astounding and extremely flattering. Thank you so much. Uh, You encourage me to continue. When I started this um, project, I had no idea really why I was doing it. It just seemed like everyone else was doing it, so I might as well join in. Um, But I have to say from my side... I enjoy it. Um, for uh, for your information, these podcasts are done almost exclusively in, in one take. There's occasionally, I'll listen to one back and think, mm, I didn't quite mean that, and insert another 10 seconds. But by and large, these are just my thoughts as, as I address a subject. So this week is uh, ghost busting. Um, I referenced in the last question and answer, podcast, um, the situation of students, really excellent, top students coming to play, you know, the Tomasi and the Creston, and you name it, Bluebells of Scotland or the Zanarkis, beautifully. And then we say, right, well, there's an audition coming up in who knows where, Karlsruhe or Rotterdam or whatever, let's have a look at the David. And all of a sudden, I have a 16-year-old boy or girl in front of me. um, And all of the difficulties of previous lives... (laughs) Reemerge because if you take the David is a classic example because you know I hear 12 year olds practicing it 16 year olds and I hear that I have to say with a a hint of sadness Um, we're going to spend enough of our lives with the David concerto without soiling a 12 year old with it Um, and as you know you know my reasons for not encouraging that too early is that if we use a a concerto like that, or, um, you know, the orchestral excerpts, to use them as as etudes, as a way to improve our technique. The ghost of that previous player will always be a little bit there. And this podcast is about, I've been asked, well, yeah, okay, we know the situation, what can we do about it? So I'd like to just discuss around the the issue a little bit and hopefully help uh, certainly how I go about it. Um, when I, I first played the David concerto, I think I was 24, 23, 24, it was the first concerto I played with the London Symphony. Someone said, oh, it's a nice piece you should play. It. Now, that will come as a bit of a surprise, certainly to many of the German listeners um, to this podcast, of which there are many, thank you very much. Um, yes, I was 23 or 24 before I even looked at the David. I don't think I'd ever heard it. It was not on the British radar. So two weeks before I was due to perform it with the London Symphony, I uh, got the music out and um, started looking at it. I mean, that's a huge advantage. You know, I had no baggage. I had no past. I had no previous on the piece. I just came to it with who I was as a player and a person aged 23, 24. Goodness me, that's early enough. Um, And the first thing that I noticed about it was, you know, that Measures three to six in the first movement <laughs> were not legato, not exclusively legato. There were some articulations in there, some detached articulations, and on that point uh, alone, is probably a reason why a lot of German or German auditions are broken because they play, they hear so many auditions um, where those measures three to six are just played exclusively legato, which is completely wrong. Anyway, that's probably the theme for another podcast. I won't go there now. Many years later, um, Jeremy Wilson, when he did his audition for the Vienna Philharmonic, um, that's a lovely story about how I first heard Jeremy and encouraged him to do the the Vienna Philharmonic Philharmonic audition. I think he's been told many times. I heard him on a a, um, blind recording competition, you know, and in the end was so persistent about saying, Who the heck is number three or whatever number he was? You know, and I was told, that's highly irregular. You may not do this. I said, well, yeah, okay, but, you know, we've got a a job coming up in the Vienna Philharmonic and whoever number three is sounds just right for what we're looking for. And uh, so I finally beat the door down and got to uh, hear Jeremy for the first time in person. He was, I don't know how old Jeremy was. How old were you, Jeremy? 23, something like that? when he did the Vienna Philharmonic Audition. And he was training to be a, um, an educator. He was in, a, in an educator's program. He wanted to teach, you know, 12 to 18-year-olds, maybe a little bit older than that. And he was lead trombone in the One O'Clock Big Band. So playing in an orchestra was absolutely not on his radar at all. He, he didn't know much of the orchestral repertoire. Um, and, and I encouraged him, said, look, you know, you play clearly, you have a beautiful sound, it's what we're looking for. And so when I coached him for the audition in in Vienna, and and yes, I did coach him for the audition in Vienna. Um, I think in the final, there were 16 people, 12 of whom I'd either taught or coached. The four who did not get coaching by me had not asked for it. That's going to sound like a strange um, uh, system, I think, particularly for American players, where... I believe it's it's illegal to coach someone before an audition. Um, I can see that. I don't know how you get or get around the issue of when your student is taking the audition because you can never if someone's if someone's studied with you, you've you've coached them, haven't you? I mean, at some point or another. Um, so that's you know it's it's not uncommon in Europe that for you to ask a member of a section you know for some coaching, and and I personally don't. See, there's anything wrong with that. I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but I tend to. I mean, what I've always suggested, and of course I've been looked down upon for, is you know, if an orchestra is looking for a certain type of player, why don't you have an information day? Why don't you two days, two weeks, two weeks before an audition say, look, we're going out, we're going to have an open day on a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, and anyone who's applied come down and meet the section and we'll play for you and we'll show you what we're looking for. So that when it is an audition, you know, you've got a bunch of poor students going in there wondering whether the section is, you know, going to approve of what they're doing or not. I mean, it would seem logical, wouldn't it? It's almost like giving job requirements. What we're looking for is this. Now you have two weeks, go away and work on it. And um, if someone's good enough, that should be absolutely fine. I think that would be a really... Really great system. Um, I suggested that once. Received a message back from the first trombone player saying that, um, you know, if I wanted to know how their orchestra plays, I should take the trouble to go and listen to their concerts. Yeah, very nice. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't do that <laughs> Do that for every orchestra. I can have a decent idea. Some of them are a bit confusing, but, you know, like that one. Um, but, you know, it's, I can have an, an idea. It, I just think the idea of the open day two weeks before an audition would be fantastic. Um, now I really have gone on a massive detour. So we've got <laughs> we've got the uh, the ghost of the sixteen-year-old, the twelve-year-old playing the the David. Now what do we do about it? And at this point, I'm going to reference, as I usually do, wine in sherry in Spain they have something called the Solera system and that is that basically one year they make some sherry and after a certain time they take some out and sell it and replace that quantity with new wine and it goes on and so you can imagine where I'm going with this in some cases if you pour a glass of sherry some of it's 70 to 80 years old in there And so it is with us as people. We are this evolving development as a human being and as a player and as a musician. And with every note that we play, the archive of development that has gone into that can be evident. And so the hardest thing for a student to do is to focus solely on the person, the musician, and the player that they have worked so hard to become. That when they play something, the ghost of yesterday, the flinch at the first note of bolero, even though you can play it at three o'clock in the morning on a bass trombone, you know, you still have that flinch of from a a bygone day when it was difficult for you. And this is the point that we reached in the podcast last time. And I've had so many questions from people who have very kindly written in and said, yeah, good, but what do we do about it? Well, the first thing that we can do um, as a person, before we even look at the relationship with the teacher, as a person, is it's a... It's the process of forgiveness. It's the process of I think it <laughs> I think all of us um, who reach my age, it's very easy to realize that you, you weren't always happy with your, you know, the the things, the way you behaved at certain points in your life. Um, and you weren't always happy with the person you were. And you need to go through a process of forgiveness. And that's not going into a process of denial. That's a process of looking at the situation. So, well, look, you know, I was, I'm doing my best now. I was doing my best then. And there is an equivalent um, thing with, with playing that so many of these old issues get so deep-rooted in the psychology of the practice room that it's really, really important that you focus exclusively on the player you've become and it's by reinforcement and it's not a question of looking back and saying you know well I did do this and I had a problem now I don't because that's also negative. Any thought of of the past where you had issues is, is, is not going to be positive. You should be focusing solely on the qualities as a player and a musician and a person that you've become. And it's a slow process, you know. So to all of those of you who have written in and said, look, what do I do about this? I'm afraid it's not something you can do overnight or something I can't do overnight. And the almost exclusively... I'm very fortunate, I have, I have fantastic students, and every year the class that I have gets stronger and stronger. But almost with every student, the first job that I have is convincing the student of how good they are. Now, I'm not going along the Dennis Wick lines here of, you know, if you convince a student they're good, they will become good, it's different to that. The students that I get are good, Um, but very often they've gone through a pedagogical system which is based on troubleshooting, which is they go and they play something and the teacher points out what they did wrong. And so that negative um, thought process gets wired in very, very early. And I think it's also partly the human disposition so to do, even when we're um, practicing on our own, to say... This wasn't good, this wasn't good, this wasn't good. Fix it. But I think there's a certain point with students, very often when they're 21, 22 years old, where there's a very important process of stock taking is required, where they look at what they have, the state of the union. What can I do? What is really good? Never mind what I used to be able to do. This is where I've come. Wow! Look at what I can do. So I will spend six months, you know, pointing out to students. And um, and uh, I would say I'm absolutely not being disingenuous. I have never told a student they're fantastic when they are not. I have never said to someone, good, and not meant it. That may mean good, you're doing a good job, well done. It doesn't mean good, tick the box, you've completed it, and I think you're good. It means I think you're doing a really good job, well done. Um, So I do reinforce with students the qualities that they have, and I I find it very sad to see the um, scenario so often where I think someone's better than they do. And that makes me a little bit sad, I have to say, and I see, I do see that a lot. Where I can see the potential, I can see, you know, the capabilities that are just around the corner, and the only thing that's stopping the student from getting there is the belief. Um, so it's a it's a joint thing where the student and the teacher really agree with each other that we're going to move forwards from this day on, dealing only in what I can do, what my qualities are. So that, those are my thoughts on, on ghostbusting. It requires a commitment from the student and from the teacher. Um, and at this point, <laughs> here's a bit of a hot one. I'm changing the subject. And you won't see this on any of the advertisements for this podcast. This is a bonus discussion. For those of you who have been brave enough to stick around to the end. (laughs) Nepotism. What made me think about this was I was attacked when Jeremy Wilson got the job in the Vienna Philharmonic for coaching him. And like I very pointedly mentioned, I'd coached 12 or taught at least 12 of the 16 that were in the last round. It's almost impossible now for there to be an audition in Europe where I, where I haven't coached or taught somebody, probably even in the last round at some point. And you know it was seen as a criticism. And I understand why the criticism came because from American perspe- perspectives that's uh, allowed because, and I, I do, and I, I'll say before I go any further, in favor of American auditions, they are run in a way, to be one hundred and bloody ten percent fair, and I take my hat off to you. Thank you so much. You know you're a shining example of as to how it how it should be. Um, but the, the reason why I would say the coaching, <laughs> the coaching element is um, not and doesn't play a role in European auditions is I've sat behind so many curtains with my own students, in some cases, ones that I'd coached even the day before, and I have no bloody idea who they are. I don't even recognize my own students. Um, I, in fact, when 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 G- Jeremy was close to winning the job in Vienna, I spoke to my wife on the phone. She said, who, who, who do you think it is? I said, well, I'll tell you what, it's not Jeremy. <laughs> so, so, you know... This idea of coaching, so you can sort of do something dubious in an audition, which I personally would be very insulted if anyone ever accused me of, because that's against my um, um, slightly autistic DNA, where I have an obsession of fairness uh, with fairness. So no. Um, now, but what that led me on to was this issue of nepotism. I had an interesting conversation with someone about this a while ago. You know, because it's fa- the Vienna Philharmonic is famous for the jobs going, and it was historically father to son to son. Peter Schmidl clarinet, third generation. uh, Franz Bartolome cello, third generation, I believe. And I think the fourth generation might be in the orchestra now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Scrub that one. I might be wrong. And um, on the face of it, you can see that as well, you know, where they're obviously stitching out for their kid to get the job. And I'm not prepared to discuss that, <laughs> that's not why I'm talking about it, what this is about is, I have a seven-year-old kid, and in fact, if you look on the front cover of Stargazer, <laughs> he, he's there, he likes it, he's famous now, he's on a CD cover, um, and it's been agreed, because his mom's a trombonist, or was a trombonist, a very fine one, and because his dad's a trombonist, and he thinks that because all of my friends are trombonists, that at some point soon, when all of his teeth settle down, he's going to play the trombone. Now, that kid can sing you the standard trombone repertoire now. <laughs> in any key you want. He hasn't even played a note yet. Anything you want. He's, he's even got the bloody heat and trombone control to him because I go down in the basement and practice and he memorises the stuff while I'm practising. So you see where I'm going with this? What kind of an advantage does he have? If, you know, I mean, he has had me playing the trombone in his ears since the day he was born. He's had the other people who come into my house for lessons are fantastic players. And so it wouldn't be a surprise. Don't know what he's gonna do. Like any parent, I just hope he's happy. But it wouldn't be a surprise if, if he had a pretty decent idea of how the Chambon should go. And as we all know, the earlier you learn things, you know, the, the, the easier it is for them to go in. Now look at, the, look at the, the Vienna Philharmonic, for example, with its extremely identifiable style. And its, you know, demands on articulation and style, which I support, as I do in Dresden, as I do in Leipzig if you're raised in a house where you hear that style when you hear that way of playing um, that way of articulating um, if you're raised hearing that at a very very early age it's not surprising that those kids have got a bloody head start on everyone else um, so yeah yeah <clears throat> I'm not going to go there with the yes or no nepotism thing. But what I can say is it's logical that those people would have an advantage, wouldn't they? Um, So those are my thoughts on that. And on ghost busting. um, I hope you found that interesting. And please, all comments, very welcome. And more to come. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me. And always go to uh, ianbowswood.com for lots more interesting stuff.